This is Brian Vardabedian, and welcome back to The Exam Room. I had the chance recently to sit down with Libby Copeland to discuss her new book, The Lost Family. This fascinating book explores, among other things, the cultural impact of personal genomics on our sense of self and family. Way too much to say about this discussion that could have gone on all day, so hope you enjoy the conversation and have a chance to enjoy The Lost Family. Enjoy. So Libby, welcome to the exam room. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So you're probably wondering how I uh, connected with you. I rolled over on Sunday morning, peeked at my phone and saw that you were on LinkedIn Live on, and with, uh, with Sri, my friend, and I said, I've got to get this book and I have to uh, talk to Libby. So here we are. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad that, um, I'm glad that we found each other. So tell us a little bit about your book, The Lost Family. Uh, what, what drew you to write this? Yeah, so um, I'm a journalist, and I write about the intersection of culture, human behavior, and science. Um, and a few years ago, I, I used to work for the Washington Post. I'm now a freelance journalist, and I still write for the Post. And my editor there said, you know, a friend of mine's a genealogist, and she says we really need to write about these um, unexpected results that people sometimes get when they're doing DNA testing. So I looked into it. And um, I called a, a prominent genetic genealogist and um, got some stories from her, focused in on one, and wrote this big story about this one woman's journey. And um, when I was on the verge of publishing it, they, uh, my editor said, you know, I think this could be something bigger. And I thought, you know, it could be. So I, I made a little email address and I asked people to send me their DNA testing stories. And we put it at the bottom of the story. And it was one of those like, be careful what you wish for moments because I immediately began getting hundreds of emails from people who connected with the story and had had something happen when they spit into a tube or swabbed their cheek. They had gone into it expecting one thing and had gotten something incredibly different and life-changing from the results. Um, and as I was reading these stories, which were very intimate and very um, heartbreaking sometimes, sometimes heartwarming, they ran the whole gamut, I thought, um, boy, I think this is a book. And that that was sort of how I got into it. Okay, so it really began with your your background as a freelance writer or a writer for the Washington Post, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Just to pull upon what you just said, do, do people really have any idea what they're getting into when they spit into that vial and send it off? Or you think it's there's an element of uh, ignorance or... Uh, you know what I'm saying? Do people yeah, I, mean, I think that they don't. I think that they do more so now because there have been a number of stories um, about mm -hmm. this. And I'm hoping that more coverage kind of gets across the idea that people should know that this can be a big under undertaking. Um, you know, the companies, the major companies do provide um, sort of kind of like a warning before you test where they say, you know, just so you know, um, you could learn something really unexpected that could change the way mm -hmm. you think about your family. What I found in interviews is that people generally didn't think that this would apply to them. And why would they? Because, um, you know, you you assume you know what there is to know about your family. And, you know, right. it, it, it's an incredible cognitive dissonance to find out at 50 years old that that something really, really important has been held back for whatever reasons from you, uh, at something germane to your your identity. So what I found was that people generally didn't expect that the statistical 
probability possibility was going to apply to them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the and, and the other piece of this is how we engage with them. You know, these are, this is recreational genetics testing. People give these as gifts around the holidays. The major companies advertise these as pl- opportunities to make a family go grow closer. Give this as a gift to your mother on Mother's Day. And so, you know, the whole context for how we're engaging with this is not at all um, the way we engage with other kinds of genetic testing. I, I talked to a bioethicist at NIH who told me, you know, when you go in for medical genetics testing in the context of a doctor's office, mm-hmm. you, know, you know to be worried, or at least you know to be on high alert, right? Because you know there could be something in there right. that's alarming. But we don't engage with this testing with with that assumption. And so people go in basically doing this for fun out of a sense of curiosity. It's relatively inexpensive. And that's where the disconnect comes because then they can find something that's really profoundly life-changing and they really weren't prepared for it going in. I pulled on this uh, remark that you made. I guess uh, someone said to you, if you don't want to know the answer, don't ask. But you remarked that we don't know what we're asking, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like, what is the universe of possibility here? So you can't even conceive of what you could discover. So for instance, the greatest kind of unexpected outcome would be discovering that your father's not genetically related to you. Um, now, there are people who, who go into direct-to-consumer testing because they're trying to find their genetic father, or maybe they mm-hmm. always had their suspicions and they're trying to like figure out if their suspicions were correct. But there are many, many people who never had an inkling that their father wasn't genetically related to them, at least not on a, on a conscious level. Sometimes they'll say going back, that, you know, looking back, they always there were things that that maybe would have raised an alarm, but didn't. Or now, in retrospect, they know what they meant. But you know, the point is that you know you can find out that you have experienced an NPE, which stands for um, non paternity event or not parent expected. You can find out that you were donor conceived. You can find out you have a half sibling that you didn't know about who was maybe conceived before you were born. Um, and so you know, there's just this whole kind of swath of things that you. Um, maybe aren't anticipating the possibility of finding mm-hmm. out. And you also say there's also this reaction on the other side of the test, right? I guess people find information about relatives and they want to reach out to relatives. And uh, I guess as the experience of, of the people who are the recipients, unexpected recipients of what's right. found on your personal testing, right? Right. So this makes it a bit of a roulette wheel. You really don't know what you're going to find. You don't know how the people on the other side are going to respond. So in this, in my book, The Lost Family, I write about people who are embraced by their genetic kin. Uh, you know, a woman who finds her father. He he never knew that she had been conceived. Um, he's overjoyed, overjoyed to find her. He is living mm-hmm. with Lou Gehrig's disease, and he considers this this woman, a gift from God. She brings, she is his daughter, his first daughter, and she brings grandchildren into his life. And he thinks that this is the most amazing thing. And he says, like, none of us have time to waste on emotions like embarrassment and shame and guilt over something that happened when you were like, say, 17. And then on the other side of things, you know, there are the people who delete their tests. There are the people who I write about, you know, (laughs) genetic fathers uh, having their attorneys send letters to their genetic children saying like, mm-hmm. you know, cease and desist, stop contacting. Right. Um, there's a woman who searches for her family and finally finds their, her family. She was a foundling, which means that she was a baby abandoned on a doorstep. 
And, you know, when she finds some of her siblings, they basically say, we don't believe, we don't believe you. We don't believe the science, even though they're, they're matching her as relatives within um, the 23andMe database. They're like, no, we don't believe it because, you know, it's incredibly threatening to their story. It's, it's sort of a collision of narratives. It's my truth mm-hmm. versus your truth. Um, and so, you know, they're um, maybe, you know, maybe force, being forced to reassess their um, understanding of their own mother. And that is an incredibly painful thing to have thrust upon you. And so some people just choose to disregard it and, and deny it, deny, deny the reality. I love this quote here. The rise of consumer genomics poses questions about the emphasis we put on genetic identity and what we do when DNA results come in conflict with the narratives we've long believed about ourselves. Yeah. So I guess we have we all have this narrative that before we have this test done that we believe about ourselves that isn't necessarily true, right? I mean, we're we're storytellers, right? I mean, we, we mm-hmm. tell our stories with the beginning and a middle, and hopefully we haven't gotten to the end yet. And um, you know, you construct your identity based on um, you know based on where you think you came from, and so there's this incredibly disorienting process that happens for people when they realize that their beginning isn't what they thought. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a woman in the book who discovers she's adopted through spitting into a tube, and she's made medical decisions based on this. Um, uh, she had a radical hysterectomy based in part on what she thought her family health history was, but maybe just as profoundly, maybe more profoundly, she might say, it completely alters her sense of who she is and where she belongs in the universe. And that is a disorienting experience. And there's very little in the way of like formal official support or medical mental, you know, mental health resources for people. So, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone's kind of like navigating these, these really upending moments, um, essentially on their own, um, banding together in little Facebook groups to find each other, but, you know, basically trying to like navigate these life changing, um, you know, the, the, the life changing results of this, this technology on their own. Right. Right, right, right. You know, it's funny. I've seen I've seen this happening around me, but I never really put it into any broader context until I started reading your book, and it it's it's really quite profound. You've known people that this has happened to. Well, so uh, I will tell you flatly that when physicians uh, and I, I we can explore this together, but physicians simply aren't prepared for uh, the results of personal genomic testing when they present them to their doctor. It happened to me a, a, a few times, but with uh, uh, adult docs and internists, they're simply not prepared to deal with uh, help. I mean, it's sort of a different different uh, rabbit trail, but they're not mm-hmm. prepared to deal with the results. And we're simply not trained right. to help people navigate these waters, right? Right. And they come to you and they say, Doc, what does this mean? And you're like, but where was this? You got you got tested through 23andMe. Like, that's not a, that's not a diagnostic test. <laughs> That's not right. No, no, right, right, right. There's no chain of custody. Like, yes, it's it, yes. That's a whole other like category of issues that DTC testing like opens up. Right. I guess that, and you explore this in the book, which is what happens when, and you tell me what happens when someone finds something jarring, uh, something they weren't expecting to find, uh, let's say medically risk for a certain thing that they didn't want um, what are the options for these families or these people that find this? I guess it's limited at 23andMe, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, you definitely read stories about people going to their doctors and just as you say, you know, handing them the printouts and the doctors being like, well, like this is a 23andMe test, right? And 
and that's great as far as it goes, but like, um, you know, it didn't test for all these other ways in which you could get breast cancer, for instance, or, you know, helping people understand the risks, uh, which are very hard to understand unless your hand is kind of being held by a medical professional, you know, mm. a counselor or, or a doctor or whoever's going to hold your hand and say like, yes, you're at an elevated risk, but you know, it's still a very low chance that you're going to develop whatever it is that, you know, you're concerned about. There's, you know, stories also, and I write about this as well, you know, people take the raw data from a company like 23andMe and um, they download it and then they upload it to Prometheus or some other third-party site that parses the data. And that is something that 23andMe says, you know, warns people not to do because they haven't necessarily like vetted the data over and over but mm-hmm. if it's something that they're not presenting to you as a result. In other <clears> words, you have access to your raw results, but the things that they're not giving to you in a report might be might be not like not vetted as as carefully. And so people will get will think that they have um are at risk for, you know, early onset Alzheimer's, something else like that, and then it will turn out that that they're not. And they've gone through this whole uh, process of being like incredibly anxious. So there's a mm. bioethicist who writes about, and I'm sure you've heard these terms, the walking sick and the worrying well, you know, to what extent will testing medical traits testing and, you know, medical disease risk, risk testing create people who either, you know, don't want to, d- don't go for screening because they're, they're very, um, they, they're sort of secure and comfortable that they are not at risk when really they should be screening or, and I think this may be the more likely scenario, um, becoming really, really, really anxious that they are at risk for something that, in fact, they don't need to worry about. And the concept of epigenetics, of course, is very difficult for the public to sort of process. The idea that a gene or genetic wiring all by itself doesn't operate independently. There are so many nutritional environmental factors that influence how those genes are expressed. Um, And I guess this you, you talk in the book about this concept of genetic essentialism. I guess you're, what you're getting at there is this determinism around genes that you've got this gene and therefore it's black and white, right? Yeah. And I think that concept works for the medical realm. And I think it works for the way we think about identity and family and, and all of the different ways that, de- that genes play out and genetics play out. Like we have this language about genetics as a kind of a blueprint, as maybe a Bible, as the soul, as an essence. There's a cultural psychologist named Stephen Hine who wrote a book about the way that we think about DNA in kind of essentialist terms and the way that human beings Mm -hmm. simply tend to think in essentialist terms in any case. And so DNA just becomes a very easy kind of carrier for these beliefs. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's very hard to parse. So if you're looking at medical results, it's very hard to understand. Um, Like you said, the probability is the fact that smoking may put you at higher risk, the way that all these things interact. It's very fuzzy. We're always looking for smoking guns, right? We're always looking for, Mm -hmm. for, we we think of of genetic risks as like, like something like Huntington's, um, you know, where it's like basically a yes, no. Um, Most, most, you know, genetics results are, are, you know, probabilistic, they're not deterministic. And I think, um, you know, there's also this happens in the space of um, how we think about identity, too. I mean, we there's a there's a there's a fear, at least. Um, Some people talk about this concern that we may come to define, say, culture and ethnicity, solely in in genetic terms, rather than thinking about and race, for sure, 
rather than thinking about it, um, number one, as a matter also of, of your experience, your life experience, what you grow up with, um, how you experience your parents. Um, and number two, when you get to race, like understanding the social constructs that create race, um, understanding um, how very alike we all are. So so yes, all <laughs> the, the determinism is kind of problematic on a number of levels when you're talking about DNA. And you, and you make the point in uh, The Lost Family, you, I think you say, uh, do we really want to know the answers to all of these, right? I mean, we may not, or, or they're, they're so challenging, right? Yeah, you mean in terms of like medical issues. Um, right. Well, I guess with, I think it was I, yeah. with regard to race. I mean, okay. I think further you dig into it, it can it gets pretty fuzzy. Um, it's yeah, it certainly does. It certainly does. And there's a there's a um, a sociologist. Uh, she's now at the University of Pennsylvania who's been looking at like how DNA testing impacts how we think about race. Like, does it reinforce genetic essentialism in our thinking about race? Like, reinforce mm-hmm. the sense that you are your genes and that we are separate and that you can see race in the genes, right? Or does it enforce a sense of, of likeness and that we're, we're, we're all sort of part of the human family and that um, it really is a continuum, right? And, and that a lot of race is, a so, most of race is a social construct, if not all of race is a social construct. So she talks about that, like what, how, do these, how do these results play out? And what she found was that when people went in with a high genetic literacy, they kind of understood the test, understood what it could find, understood its limitations. They came out with a lower sense of, of genetic essentialism. And when they went in with um, lower genetic literacy, the evidence suggests that they um, were more likely to go the other way and to come out with a higher sense of genetic essentialism once they'd taken the test, like a greater sense that like race could be found in the genes and that you and I are very different, say, if we're from different races. And so this Mm -hmm. means that genetic education matters. Like our understanding of what the test is really matters going in. I think that's an important thing to take away from it. So the landscape of genomic testing goes well beyond, of course, disease prediction and genealogy, as you discuss in the book. Tell us about some of the weird businesses that have emerged from I mean, you talk about some some odd, I mean, some of these companies are, I guess, 240 companies that do genomic testing to try to tell us certain things, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can you can find out a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's the regular standard issue paternity tests that you can get at Walgreens or your, your pharmacy. Um, mm-hmm. There's, um, there's surreptitious testing, which is, what, um, that? oh, it's a great category. It's um, basically like find out if your spouse has been cheating, send oh in the, a garment of their clothing or a cigarette butt that a you stain, found in the stain, yard. Right? Send in the toothpick that you found to see if it's like no. some guy who's been, you know, cheating, you know, having an affair with your wife. I mean, it's insane. Good God. It's totally insane. And then there's um, child talent testing, which is like extremely disturbing. And that can run the gamut from um, intellectual testing to athletic testing. So it's like, find out if your child's going to be a soccer star or find out if, uh, you know, you should push your child to be a lawyer or a doctor based on their genetics, oh, like such a, an ignorant um, and reductionist way of looking at, um, at, you know, at genetics and what it can predict and cannot predict about us. So I uh, just thought of this that in 1991, um, we had a woman come and speak to us as first year medical students and wanted us to be sperm donors. Oh, wow. And I remember at the time in my puny analog brain thinking to myself, wow, what if somebody broke into the file and stole the file with my name and then 
they look in year 2020, they look me up in the phone book and send me a letter and that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, of course, I had no idea what was going to happen. And it was, um, it, I guess, it, does this, I, I don't know if this still happens in, in medical schools, but obviously, I mean, this is a huge issue for sperm donors, right? I mean, these, these, these kids are finding their, want to find their parents, right? Yeah. And I mean, truly, there's no such thing as an anonymous sperm donor anymore. That's the, that's the big takeaway. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Is that true? Uh, I mean, because of DNA testing. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, you know, the, now the fertility banks have traditionally promised anonymity to donors. And uh, yeah. I think some of them still do. But uh, increasingly, they're changing their language uh, to say, you know, we will not disclose. Uh, but, you know, DNA testing means that anyone can find their donor father. And yes, they often, uh, often people do want to find them. And they're finding also their half siblings. And that's interesting because, um, as you may know, there's no uh, limits. There's no um, limits on the number of um, children that any one man can con- help conceive. And so people are finding, I've heard of cases of between 100 and 200 half siblings. Um, so that, you know, if you find, say, 100 half siblings, um, then you are kind of having to think about what kinds of relationships do I want to have with these people? Um, you know, mm-hmm. How do we navigate this? I mean, you know, all of a sudden, I found all of these people in the last five years. Um, right. And in some ways, it kind of causes us to rethink what we mean when we think about family, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's just a sort of huge sprawling network of people. Um, and um, the donor conceived in those situations have to choose how to engage, um, you know, with all these people, you know, how do they, how do they engage with them? How do they regard them? Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah I, I, it, it does. It puts it all, is this really your family when you think about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think this, the important thing is that people really define this for themselves. Um, you know, you, you see this too with, um, this question of like, is the man who raised me my father or is my genetic father, my father? Um, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I think, um, that is something that people get to decide for themselves. What I found is often, you know, there's, there's room for both, you know, you, you have one relationship with the gen, your genetic father who contributed half your you know, genetic material and you have mm-hmm. a, a close and loving devoted relationship with the man who raised you. Right. And he is your father. Um, and maybe your genetic father is not considered your father, but something else, or maybe he is. It depends on what you, you know, what you, wh- where you came from, what relationship you did have with the man who raised you. Like all these things go into people's calculuses of the language that they use and um, the way they describe their relationships and the relationships themselves that they forge. Libby, this uh, is the subject material for what could be a full semester course, I think, uh, in college or medical school, right? Yeah, I actually think that this should be a sociology course. Like, I, I mm-hmm. think that I think that in the future, there's going to be a bunch of kind of experts who are studying this and that they could easily do college courses about it, right? You could have a sociology course, a, so, a psychology course, um, maybe a tech, technology historian could do something mm-hmm. really interesting with this. I mean, the, the point is it, it touches so many pieces of our lives. And, and for sure, I mean, this, this is a bioethics course as well. Um, because, you know, the whole question of how do I engage with my results and how do my, how does my truth intersect with your truth, which might be different? How does my discovery, um, affect your life? Um, you know, all those things sometimes coming into conflict, sometimes not, those are actually ethical issues for, you know, for which there's very little actual bioethical guidance. There's lots of bioethical guidance 
about um, genetics testing um, and how doctors should advise patients. There's very little for people going through this in the context mm. of a direct-to-consumer test. So you've been tr- had tremendous background in the preparation for the lost family, and I want to ask you an important question. If I were to consider doing this, which I've not done, or my mother-in-law were to approach me and ask me, what should we consider before spitting in a cup and sending it in? I mean, what should go through our mind? There's a couple of ways to answer that. So a few years ago, I used to think that at the time, the databases were relatively small. And so I kind of thought about it in terms of like, think about the universe of possibility of what you might discover and make sure that you're okay with being able to handle that. Maybe Mm -hmm. test at a time when you feel like you have the bandwidth to take on the discovery of, say, a, I don't know, a first cousin given up for adoption, for instance. Um, mm. Or maybe there's an NPE a couple generations up the line, um, you know, something relatively smaller, something relatively bigger, depending on the impact on your family. Um, I don't think about it that way anymore, and I'll tell you why. Um, the databases have grown. When I started writing the book, uh, actually scribbling it into uh, a software called Scrivener, in 2018, in the summer, the databases were at 8 million. And um, by the time I, uh, no, I want to say, I think when I, when I started writing the book in 2017, anyway, it went in the course of a year or two, it, the numbers went in the databases went from 8 million to 30 million, uh, approaching 30 million. And they're now at about 35 million. And what that means is that even if you never choose to test, um, if there's a genetic secret in your family, it's going to come out. Um, because somebody in your immediate circle will. Your aunt will test. There are no more family secrets, right? Yeah, there are no more. And so the advice I give now is not um, test or don't test. I mean, I, I... I, d- I never gave that advice in the first place, right? Like, but but it, but the advice I'm giving now is less think about what you might discover. I mean, it's partly that, sure. But it's also, um, you know, have those difficult conversations or start thinking about them now if you're someone who um, is sort of in possession of a genetic secret. Because, because it's incredibly painful to find out this information that's germane to your own identity. And that's what people have told me over and over is it's painful to find out that a secret was kept from you, right? And mm-hmm. they're glad to know even when it's painful. Um, they're glad to know the truth and they want to be able to process that incorporate it. And it is much better to get this information, both because it's important, it's important to you. Um, and it's much better to get this information from somebody you love than to get it from a computer screen. So if you are in possession of a genetic secret, it's in your best interest to get out in front of it. And it's also, you're really doing a great act of goodness and generosity for the person about whom the secret is being kept, um, because it's the right thing to do for them to know the truth. You know, it's remarkable, because I don't think anybody goes through this thought process when they spit in that vial, right? I think they, it's recreational, it's, we're going to find something fun and um, yeah. it's remarkable how, how much is there, right? Yeah. I mean, the, and the vast majority of people find that it is sort of just something really cool and it's a way of doing genealogical research. You know, our mm-hmm. family was able right. to discover incredible things. I, I am not sort of against this technology. I think it's pretty amazing. And I feel like the immediacy of your past, the past that you can access from this is incredible. It's really enhanced my sense of sort of all, where all the branches of my family come from. And I feel like I feel really hopeful about being able to discover more about my own genealogy. And that's, that's really neat. It's complicated, like all technologies, right? All technologies are complicated. 
and and the way we engage with them and and the, the results that they give us can be really um, nuanced and complex. And it's not just a black or white, do this or don't do this. But, you know, I do think that for the significant minority of people uh, who discover something really unexpected, which is um, certainly at least a million people now, um, and, and many more millions of people are impacted by those people who make those discoveries. Um, yeah, I do think that very often they're not expecting this and that there probably needs to be more in the way of preparation for these people and also resources for these people. One of the great things about the lost family that you did so well is use uh, case scenarios and stories of people who had these jar- you know, jarring positive or negative experiences around what they discovered. And uh, it just illustrates very nicely what you just said, how, how nuanced all this is, right? Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, if you, you know, if you, um, you know, talk to some of these people who've discovered something, and, you know, for instance, there's a woman in the book who talks about, um, you know, discovering the identity of her father. Um, It turns out that her father is her mother's first cousin. And her mother says that, that her conception was actually the product of a rape. And Mm. so that is like the kind of just most harrowing scenario. And Mm. the mother is, it's kind of ripped apart through this, through this revelation. I mean, she's probably been ripped apart by it for as many years as since it happened. Right. And now it's open. Now it's open. And, and it's only for that mother to say like, whether it was good in the end that it came out or not, like I can't speak for her, but for the daughter, what the daughter told me was that as painful as that was, it was so good to finally understand where she came from, and to be able to put in context a lot of things about her life that had not made sense, a lot of things that had been troubling in her home. Um, She had more compassion and felt closer to her mother than she had in a long time because they were able to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I can't speak for whether this was ultimately like a good thing for the mother, right? There's always multiple sides or sometimes two sides, sometimes more. It's playing out for different people in different ways. And that's part of what makes this really challenging in terms of making any kind of binary pronouncements about this technology. Like it's complicated. But I will say that for the people who are discovering something about themselves and who have agency in the process, like they are the ones making the discovery. They're the ones actively pursuing it. Mm-hmm. They often, very often will say that they're glad ultimately to know even when this, the information is painful because because knowing is important, because it puts their lives in context, because it allows them to go back and reprocess their childhoods. It answers questions that they long had. And so that that is a kind of a profound thing that's happening now for many, many people within the American family. It's I think of it as a cultural shift. I think that what we're doing is kind of an inadvertent cultural revolution, you know, and a revolution within the American family. Um, yeah. And we're sort of just doing it like without intending to. But now that we're here, it's an incredibly important conversation that we need to be having. So where is all this headed? Uh, if you were to look into your crystal ball and look a decade ahead, um, given how quickly things are going and how the technology is changing, where are we headed with this with respect to privacy? And just to follow up on your last comment, how are things going to evolve, you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think you've seen a slowdown in sales for these various commercial right. companies. Um, and there's a couple of reasons that are cited for that. One of them is that they've kind of vacuumed up all the early adopters who were interested in doing this for ancestry purposes. Mm. Um, and the other is that there may be privacy concerns and that may or may not be related to things like the golden state killer case having been solved through these quasi public 
genetic genealogy databases that have commercial DNA in them, like GEDmatch. Um, So what's happening is that the companies are pivoting towards health results. They're pivoting towards giving you more health and disease risk and traits and, and, you know, wellness results and things like that. Um, And so what that means is that they're going to be trying to grow their databases. I mean, there's the databases are going to get bigger one way or the other. It's a question of how much bigger and how quickly they grow. Um, And so far, the health related results that you get are bundled with ancestry results and and relatives, which means that if you do, if they do, if they are successful in getting people to test for health related results, those people will also find out their genetic relatives. And so those people then will also be in the same position. So I think we're only getting bigger in terms of understanding more about our families and our our personal histories. And I also think like we're going to get they're probably going to get better and smarter about being able to deliver health results that are more relevant to people. And there also may be more and more of a collapse. I mean, you're already seeing it um, between um, like physicians networks and companies uh, that do this testing. You know, there are testing, there are companies that kind of test in partnership with physicians. That's what Ancestry and MyHeritage are now doing. They're taking a different tack from 2020. There are other companies like Color that have been doing this, the Mayo Clinic Gene Guide. So, you know, there's a kind of a, te- a collapse perhaps to be seen between the recreational um, category of testing and medical institutional testing. So I think we're going to be seeing more and more of that. Well, Libby, what a great conversation. And uh, I think uh, this has been amazing. And I want to thank you for your time and the opportunity to discuss your brilliant book, The Lost Family. This really raises for me more questions than it answers, which I think is uh, the sign of an amazing book. And so thank you. It, do you have a website or any place where people can find you or you want to send people anywhere? Yeah, sure. So you can find me at libbycopeland.com. So that's L-I-B-B-Y-C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D. Um, and if you search for The Lost Family, uh, well, you can find it in most places. Um, it's also, um, there's more about it on my website as well. In the old days, we used to say, where can we find your book? <laughs> you can Is find it everywhere. Right? Amazon, Inbound, right. right, yeah. And it's gotten pretty good reviews from The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. So I'm pretty proud well, of that. I'm excited about we that. appreciate being so generous with your time for our uh, our audience. And uh, uh, I'm almost done with The Lost Family. I've loved it so far. I really recommend right. it for uh, all my listeners. Oh, so, I really uh, appreciate it. Thanks so much. This has been such a pleasure talking to you. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.